I have discovered that Americans love Aussie accents. We love listening to people who have this accent from Australia, whether it's a, a voice actor, somebody reading an audio book, somebody that we're sitting next to at a restaurant. There's just something about that accent that is just really, really cool. Um, especially for me, I grew up in an area of the country where I have no accent. And so I just kind of, you know, I've always admired people who had Aussie accents. A few years ago, I was in the car with a friend of mine and um, he had his phone kind of on the hands-free because he was, you know, following the law and being safe. And so he said, hey, Siri. And Siri talked back in an Australian accent. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know you could do that, you know? And so it was really cool. Siri right now is trying to talk to me on my iPad. So I'm going to just ignore her for a second. So stop. Um... But I grew up watching uh, people who had Australian accents. I remember watching this guy on TV, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. My clicker is not working, if you can help me up there. There we go, this guy, yeah. And maybe it was the fact that he was doing things that maybe crossed the line from, you know, uh, courageous to reckless. You know, maybe it was the fact that, that he was playing with these wild animals, or maybe it's just because he had this really cool accent. But I loved this guy. And now my kids, they grew up with this guy right here, Thor, um, which is interesting. Thor is an Australian playing a Norwegian god in a comic book movie for children that grown-ups love. It's just a weird combination of things. But Something about his accent is really cool. Well, I've discovered that, that there's a, a pastor who has an Australian accent that I like. It isn't just the accent. He has really great content. His name is John Tyson. And John came to Christ at the age of 17 in the middle of a revival in Australia. He moved to the United States, and he now leads a church in New York City. And I was listening to John earlier this year talk about a trip that his family went on. John has just been captured and captivated and fascinated by the phenomenon of, of revivals or outpouring of the Holy Spirit across history. And so a few years ago, he took his family on a year-long trip. They took it kind of in different chunks, and he called it the Tyson Family Revival Tour. They went to 17 or 18 different places around the world where in the last several hundred years, the Holy Spirit has outpoured in a way that was significant. We call these moments awakenings or revivals. And so he traveled to all of these cities around the world with his family because he wanted to learn on, on the ground what it was like after reading about these experiences in books. And so John traveled to these places and he came back and, and, and when, what he discovered was that there, there wasn't like a common thread in terms of the denomination that these moments happened with. There, there wasn't a common thread when it came to the, um, the, the financial level of these people. Sometimes they were in wealthy areas, sometimes they were in poor areas. There wasn't like a, a linguistic or cultural similarity. They were all different types of people. He came back and one of his friends said, John, did you figure out the secret of all these revivals? Like you went on this tour, like what did you find? Did you find the thing that was in common? And John said to him, he goes, I did. I did find out the secret. And and the guy said, well, well, what is it? And so John said, well, lean in. It's a secret. I got to tell you, it's a secret. So he said, okay, well, what is it? And, and John leaned in and he says, God comes where he's wanted. Visiting those 17 or 18 places, John found it wasn't that the people had a certain belief about the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that they had a certain amount of capital that God could use. It wasn't that they were a part of a certain type of people that that way it could spread more easily. What he found is that in different places and in different centuries and on different continents, the one thing that was in common 
when God showed up in a manifest or significant way, when the Holy Spirit was outpoured in a place, what happened was those people had a hunger and a desire and a want for God that God moved in response to. And, and I couldn't get that story out of my head all throughout this year. And so when I came back from sabbatical, I had a different plan. We were going to talk about something different other than prayer. But I said, I, I want to pause and make sure that the plan I made in April is still the plan we should run in August. And, and I felt profoundly convicted that we should pivot and talk about prayer. And, and as I've experienced over the last weeks with you, I'm, I really feel like that was what God was wanting for us and that God's been at work in this series. And so as we wrap this series up, here's what I want to talk about today. Prayer is one way that we say, God, we want you here. Prayer is one way that we can use to say, God, we want you here in this place. God, I want you in my life. God, I want you in this circumstance. God, I want you in this relationship. And prayer is the way that we express that and communicate that to God. And if God comes where he's wanted, my hunger and heart for my life and for your life and for our church is that we would say, God, we want you here. We want you to be present here. We want you to be active here. We are hungry for you. And I want that to be true even when this series ends. Like, I don't want you to be hungry for God while we're in a series on prayer, because that ends today. I don't want your, your hunger to get satisfied, okay, moving on. I want us to develop a greater hunger and a greater passion, because if God comes where he's wanted, I want God to come here. I want him to move here. And so today what I want to do is I want to share with you three reminders about prayer and spiritual hunger. And so if you have a copy of the note sheet and you're taking notes, there's some blanks you can fill in. But the first reminder is this. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 63, where the first one's going to come from. So Psalm 63, middle of your Bible, if you're new to the scriptures, first five verses is going to be our, our text for today. And, and the, the heading says a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And that's going to be significant. Kelly, if you can advance these for me as I read. Beginning in verse one, this is what David writes. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you and my body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David writes these incredible words about his hunger for God, his love for God, his passion for God, and he writes them from an unexpected place. And it teaches us this first reminder, that we need to allow adversity to awaken our hunger, and we need to beware of success dulling our hunger. I would encourage you to allow the adversity that you face to awaken your hunger for God and beware of success dulling your hunger for him. 
David is known as the man after God's own heart. He, he presided over this large season of, of favor for the people of Israel. He was successful in battle. He reigned for 40 years. He wrote so many of the Psalms that we read, Psalm 63 being one of them. But this particular Psalm was written from a season and a place of adversity. I mentioned to you the heading that says that he wrote this from the wilderness. And so in David's experience, as he's writing this text, scholars believe that the context is that one of his sons has led a coup. And his son has taken the throne. And so David has fled Jerusalem into the wilderness to protect his own life. And while David was successful at writing psalms and praising God, truthfully, he was a pretty terrible dad. Like, he's not the kind of model of fatherhood that you want to follow. And so from that place of wilderness, grieving over what has happened with his son and mourning over what happens from his kingdom, in the midst of adversity, he writes this incredible song, not from the throne, but from the desert. And in this psalm, the most powerful line for me as I was reading it in the midst of Psalm 63 is this line, God, your love is better than life. God, your love, your faithful love, your covenant love, your loving kindness, it's translated differently depending on your translation, is better than life. And I, and I was bringing this sermon together on Wednesday morning this week, and I read that passage again, and a thought hit me. Are those words true for you, Scott? Scott, do you believe that God's love is better than life? And I'd like to think that I'm hungry for God. I just told you that I want God's presence here. I want God to come here. But truthfully, and I need to be honest, because we come to the text and God invites us to use it as a mirror to be honest. When I was reading these verses on Wednesday morning, and I read this verse, I was like, I'm not sure that I fully believe that. That God's love is better than life. That God's love is the most significant thing to me above everything else. And I can certainly tell you that, that some of that is a result of the season that I'm in. There have been times in my life where I read those words or I spoke those words and they were 100% true. But many times when I said those words and I meant them, it was because I was in a season of adversity. It was I was in a season of struggle. And that hardship and that pain and that difficulty was what led me to that sense of conviction. You know, adversity comes for all of us and it comes in different forms. Sometimes it comes through a health crisis. Sometimes it comes through a crisis in a marriage. Sometimes it comes through a financial crisis. And sometimes it comes as we realize the, the mortality and we grieve the people around us. And often what happens is that when we are in adversity, our hunger for God grows. We're more desperate for him. We're more dependent on him. We, we pray with more passion. We say, God, your love is better than life because I know that the only way I'm going to get through this adversity is you and your love. And then what happens is we move into a season of success. Those challenges go away. 
Maybe that diagnosis turns into a, a healthy prognosis. Maybe that marriage is saved. Maybe we move into a season of financial success. Maybe it seems like everybody around us is healthy. And then what happens is that all too often the way we pray in success becomes far different than the way we prayed in adversity. I can tell you for, for a lot of people, I've been working in churches for 17 years, people's attendance and engagement pattern at church is different in adversity and in success. People sit in a different section of the room. They have a different posture. And looking at them, I can tell there is a hunger difference in success and in adversity. And that's why I, I want to encourage you to, if you're in a season of adversity, allow that to build and draw out a hunger for God. And if you're in a great season, I'm so grateful. But beware. Beware of allowing your hunger to be satisfied by things that are not God. And beware of allowing your success to dullen and diminish your hunger for him. Sometimes that's why I see adversity coming in a bizarre way as a gift. Because it's not what we want. We don't want bankruptcy. We don't want to be in the marriage counselor's office with our marriage hanging by a thread. We don't want to be in the doctor's office. We don't want to be sitting there planning a funeral. But how many of us would say that the times we were closest to God in our lives were those kind of times? And we go, man, I want to be closer to God. Well, is that going to require the hardest of things to come for you? Or can you develop a hunger and an intimacy with God in the midst of the best of times? So that's the first reminder. The second one is this. Jesus never separates prayer and perseverance. If we're talking about prayer and we're talking about spiritual hunger, we have to understand that when Jesus teaches about prayer, he never separates these two ideas, prayer and perseverance. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 7. So go from Psalm 63 to Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is the end of this teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we were in this passage a few weeks ago when we talked about the Lord's Prayer in week 2 and how Jesus taught us to pray and not to pray. Well, in that same sermon, it's only like 25 minutes long. So it's like 10 minutes later in the conversation. It's not a huge distance apart. Jesus talks about prayer and in a way that a lot of us have heard. And so I, I want to read it to you and then I think reintroduce it to you. In Matthew 7, this is what Jesus said. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's a very familiar passage, ask, seek, knock. Songs have been written about it. It's been turned into art. You'll probably find it Hobby Lobby if you go there today. But many of us read it as if these are momentary things. Ask, seek, knock. 
And so once we've done that, we've asked, we've sought, and we've knocked. Many of us go, well, I did that, Scott, and nothing happened. I did my part. I asked, I knocked, I sought, and then what? And what we miss is what's happening here in the text because this particular tense that's used here indicates present continuous action. So another way that you could translate this is present in the New Living Translation in Matthew 7, 7, and see if this changes your perception of Jesus' teaching. There it's translated, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. That's why I said that Jesus never separates prayer and perseverance because the kind of prayer he's teaching is not a one-off. It is a continuous, persevering action. And so Jesus is calling us to ask and keep asking, to knock and if you've ever seen Big Bang Theory, it's like Sheldon on steroids, you know, just keep knocking and keep seeking. That's the kind of prayer that Jesus longs to answer. And he uses this metaphor of a father. And if he says, you who are evil, which I, I'm kind of just shocked he just talks like that. Like if you walked in today and I said, you know, you guys, you evil people who are here at church today, you know, you evil moms and dads. If you evil moms and dads know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does a perfect father want to respond to asking, seeking, and knocking? And part of that persevering in prayer is not just the things that we speak, it's also in the listening. Sometimes the persevering is in the asking, and sometimes the persevering is in the waiting. A lot of us are more like little kids than we realize. My little kids, they're not so little anymore, but they hate being bored. Like, boredom is the ultimate enemy. Anything but boredom. And a lot of us are the same way. That when we wait on God and we listen for him, we get bored. And so we give up. We stop persevering. I mentioned last week about listening to God. Part of listening to God is not just listening, but it's continuing to listen. And in that, we discover that a lot of us are perseverance adverse people. We're not that patient. We don't wait that well. Our perseverance muscles are really, really wimpy. And so as a result, our prayers don't last very long because as we're waiting, as we're asking, as we're seeking, as we're knocking, we get bored and we give up. John Tyson, that pastor I mentioned earlier, he, he mentioned this in the same message I mentioned earlier. He mentioned this quote from Albert Haas that has just been ringing in my head. Haas says this, we also must resist the temptation to look for a single program, practice, sorry, book or guru that will cause spontaneous combustion. There are none. How many times have I been tricked into thinking that by reading the most recent book by a favorite author or practicing the latest spiritual craze, I'll become a saint. 
A wise spiritual director once said to me, there's no spiritual microwave oven you can put yourself in and come out 60 seconds later as a saint. You must be willing to jump into the crock pot called your life and simmer for a lifetime. Catching fire takes patience and perseverance. It's hard, fatiguing work. It also requires a daily commitment to nurturing and tending the fire once it's been lit. And this is a place where we have to recognize that we are living in a microwave culture following a crockpot God. And I'll just say from experience, sometimes a crockpot is even fast for God. Catching fire with hunger and passion for God takes patience and perseverance. And Haas is right. It is hard, fatiguing work. Some days following Jesus is exhausting because it requires us to keep asking, seeking, knocking, and listening when we get tired and impatient and bored. Uh, a couple years ago, we got ready for Halloween at our house. And our family, we, we celebrate Halloween. So if you've got thoughts on that, that's great. You do your thing. We're going to do our thing. Um, and so we have a neighborhood that is super into Halloween. And so on the weeknights, when it's Halloween, we have like three or 400 kids come to our house. On the weekends, it might reach 800 kids. So our entire neighborhood is there. And be like, this is the best chance to meet our neighbors. We're going to have all year long. And so what we do uh, is we bring our fire pit from the front yard, so from the backyard to the front yard. We put it in the driveway, and somebody stays with the fire pit and the candy, and somebody else takes the kids, and it's, it's a full-on night. We've got food. It's just, it's amazing. We dress up. And, and so a couple years ago, we were feeling like, hey, we want to make this simpler. And so what we did is we went to the store, and we bought one of these um, instant fire logs. Have you seen this before? Because we're like, man, we don't have time to worry the fire. And so this thing promotes itself as fast, easy, and clean. And, and it's, a, it's a true marketing thing. I mean, it lit right away. We had two or three of these. Um, it was super easy. Um, and, and it didn't put off as much smoke as regular fire, which was great. But there's a couple problems with this log. One, it doesn't put off nearly as much heat as a regular fire. And things got cold, and the fire wasn't really that helpful. And then, if you've used one of these before, there's a little bit of a chemical smell. And my wife is really sensitive to smell. And so, like, we had to put the fire out because it was, like, giving her, like, a reaction. And so the next year, what we did is we got rid of this easy, clean, cheap option, but the regular fire. And, man, when it got cold, it was so much more helpful. And, and it didn't put off a smell. And, yeah, there was smoke. But we put up with the smoke, and we lasted a lot longer with that fire. And friends, a lot of us approach prayer like we do this. We want it to be fast, easy, and clean. Those are the values of this world, but they are not the values of Jesus. Jesus is not interested if it's fast. He's interested in doing it right. Following Jesus is messy. And... Um, and following Jesus is far from easy. And so I just want to encourage you this winter, as you make fires, as you sit beside fires, as you enjoy fires, I want to rem be a reminder for you that when Jesus is at work in your life, it's both prayer and it's perseverance. 
And when you build that fire right, it lasts for hours and it provides great heat. Here's the third reminder I want us to lean into today, and that's that God responds to persistence. God responds to persistence. If your Bible's still open, just turn a couple books over to the book of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I mentioned to you uh, a few weeks ago when we were going through a parable of Jesus that Jesus' parables were intended to do two things. For people who were open to it, he was trying to make things really easy to understand. But for people who weren't open to it, he was trying to make it hard to understand. And he said all the time, let him who has ears, let him hear. Some of you today, you came in and you're not that open to me. That's fine. I can't force you to be open. It's going to be the message for you. Maybe the time for you. Some of you came in and you were open. You were hungry. You're taking ravenous notes. Well, let he or she who has ears let you hear. And what Jesus does in this parable is completely unique. You never find this anywhere else in the Bible. With verse 1, what Jesus does through Luke is he gives the meaning first. The text begins, now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So he gave the punchline before he gave the story. The purpose of this parable is that we would know that we should pray always and not give up. What happened is there was a judge, Jesus says, in a certain town. And this judge didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, this judge was unwilling. But later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, I mean, he's evil and self-aware, which typically is uncommon. (laughs) Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you, he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus takes this parable with the purpose of teaching us that we should pray and not give up. And he does it by using the image of an evil judge. And he says, if this evil judge eventually does what is right because this widow is persistent, how much more will God, who is not an evil judge, but a holy and righteous judge, respond to us as we pray and come to him with persistence. It's the same analogy he used earlier with saying, hey, if we, who he says are evil parents, know how to give good gifts to our children when they ask, how much more will this perfect father respond to the asking, seeking, and knocking? Because God is not an evil judge, nor is he a sinful parent. And God responds in these stories and he models to us that we become persistent in our prayers. And some of you, this is going to hit close to home because you've been persistent. Some of you have been praying for certain prayers, for certain people, or certain things. Not for days, not for weeks, 
Not for months, but for years. Some of you have been praying the same prayer in 23 you prayed in 22, and 21, and 20, and 19, and 18, and 17. Hopefully the camera guys can still follow me. 16, 15, 14. You've been praying it for a long time. And in those moments when you've been praying that same prayer a long time and you read a text like this that says God responds to persistence, what happens is that prayer becomes an invitation to trust God's character. Because in your own sinfulness and your flesh, your temptation is going to be God is not listening, God doesn't care, God's not moving, I should give up. What I've discovered in life is that trust and control are often the two options I have in front of me. Will I reach for control to try to bring things back into my world where I can try to shape it? Or will I live with trust, surrendering and yielding that control to God and and trusting his character? And, And I've prayed prayers for years And in those moments of waiting, I have found myself dealing with brokenness and and disappointment and intense emotion. And what I found is that life breaks our hearts and eventually prayer forces us to wrestle with cynicism and confusion. God, you want me to be persistent, but nothing's happening. You tell me to ask and seek and knock and my, my knuckles are bloody. I've knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked and I can't knock anymore. What gives? Did I pray wrong? Do you not love me enough? Am I asking for something that's evil? Are you really a good father? Are you really a righteous judge? And in those moments when, when, when your heart is broken because of what you're experiencing and you're wrestling with cynicism and confusion, it becomes really easy and really tempting to stop praying. Because you're like, why pray one more time if I'm just going to get the same response? Why pray one more time if I'm just going to get the same answer? And sometimes what faithfulness And following Jesus looks like is not running a marathon like we saw yesterday in our city. It's just taking one more step. Sometimes all you can do is I'm just going to pray one more time. I'm just going to hold on for one more day. I'm just going to trust God for for one more opportunity. I, I can do today I don't know about tomorrow, but it's not tomorrow yet. So I'll have to just deal with that when I get there. I'm just going to take one more step. And if you're here today and and you're weary and brokenhearted in prayer, I I brought a word for you today. And that that word is this, that, that in the Bible, we see that God is a collector. We're all collectors. We collect at different things. Some of you have your precious moments, Christmas stuff, all set up in the closet, ready to come out next month. Some of you collect guns. You know, here in Yavai County, there's more guns than people. Maybe that, that's the thing you collect. Some of you collect those, those city mugs from Starbucks and you have more mugs. I mean, you could feed the whole church coffee if we came to your house. 
If you, if you are here on Sundays, you know, I collect shoes. Shoes are what I collect. I have a sneaker collection. Well, God is a collector. And what we see in the scriptures is that God collects two things. The first one we see in Revelation 5. There it says, when he took, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then in Psalm 56, 8, we read this. David says to God, you yourself have recorded my wanderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God is a collector and he collects two things. He collects our prayers and he collects our tears. There is not a single prayer you've prayed. And there is not a single tear you've shed that has been lost on God. Not one. He hasn't lost one in a move. He hasn't forgotten where one is. He doesn't need an air tag to find it. He has collected every one of your prayers and every one of your tears because God sees. He sees it all. And when it comes to your prayer, God hears. He's heard every single one of those. And God knows. There's not a burden on your heart. There is not a concern in your mind. That There is not a, a prayer on your tongue that God does not know everything about that situation. And, and as I read those verses again in Revelation 5 and Psalm 56, and I spent time this week driving around reflecting on the fact that God collects my tears and God collects my prayers, I came away profoundly reminded that God cares. And so in those moments when you're persevering in prayer and you're persisting and you're asking and you're knocking and you're seeking and you're like that widow that is just not relenting, you need to know that the devil will tell you God doesn't care. But the reminder of Revelation 5 and Psalm 56 is God does. God cares more than you could imagine. And prayer in the midst of that kind of circumstance is a way that you say to God, God, I want you here. You're not showing up or expressing your power here yet like I want you to, but I am never going to stop reminding you that I want you here. And if you come where you are wanted, God, you are wanted here. And that is what we should live, whether or not we're in a series on prayer, whether or not things are going poorly for us or going well for us. That should be the pattern of our lives as individuals and as a church. So here's some next steps that we can take to put that into practice. The first one is this. I want to invite you to join us over the next three Thursdays in an experiment we're doing as a church where we're going to fast and pray together. Now, this is not an experiment because we don't know what prayer does. We're not scientists going, I wonder what happens when you pray. I wonder what happens when you fast. But I know for many of you, you've never fasted. And for many of you, when you pray, you only pray alone. And to my knowledge, we've never taken time, at least since I've been here for seven plus years, to fast and pray together. And so what we're going to do is we're going to invite you on these three days 
to fast after dinner on Wednesday to dinner on Thursday for the next three Thursdays, these three days, October 19th, 26th, and that should be November 2nd. The third is actually a Friday, I think. It's November 2nd. And, and on those days in the evenings, we're going to gather at our Rosser campus, as many of you want to come, and we're going to pray together. I'm not going to preach a sermon. You're not going to take notes. It's not going to be a, a more passive experience. It's going to be active. We're going to give you some prompts, and whatever it is going to be for you, you get to be a driver of that. And when you leave today, we've put together a little guide on fasting and prayer. And you can get this if you want to, if you're watching online at this link here. But it, it answers some questions about fasting and talks about what it is and what it isn't. It kind of lays out what we're talking about doing as a church. It gives you a reminder that if you've got a medical condition or some sort of uh, struggle in your past, like an eating disorder, that you shouldn't be fasting from food. And it talks about what alternatives could be. So we'd encourage you to grab one of these in the lobby as you leave. But, but whether or not you can come together on those evenings with us, we're going to ask for those three days, that those be days where as a church, we collectively say, God, we want you here. And we express that together. And we see what comes out of that as a church. Number two, I want to encourage you to read and meditate on Psalm 63 during those days. I'd encourage you when you're like, Scott, what do I do when I'm not eating? Well, you fill that time with this. When Jesus fasted for 40 days and was tempted in Matthew 4, he said to his enemy, our enemy, the devil, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so I'd encourage you to meditate on that, that passage, Psalm 63. And, and maybe if you're like, Scott, God's love is not better than life for me. Maybe you spend time thinking about why that is. And what would it take for that to be true? And so I'd encourage you to spend time with that text. And then number three, I'd encourage you, if you're going to go through this journey that we're talking about with keeping prayer as a part of our lives, even when this series is done, I'd encourage you, you probably are not going to sustain that by yourself. All of us have weaknesses that get stronger when we're alone. And, and they lessen when we're with people. If you work out, it's like, an, it's like a workout buddy. You know, if you're running, you have a running partner. Uh, if you're working on a project, you have a study buddy. We, we talk about these people in our lives in all these areas, but I think we rarely bring it to prayer. And so I'd encourage you, if there's a, a stirring in your heart to seek God with new intensity and new passion and new hunger, don't do that alone. Share that with someone that you know and say, hey, would you do this with me? Because I have found that I am more vulnerable to the temptations of the enemy when I'm by myself than I am with people. And so I'd encourage you, if you're going to do this, don't do it alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the reminders that you give us in your word and the, the truthfulness and the honesty you bring us that seeking you and hungering for you and praying is not going to be a quick fix. We're not going to be people who live with a deep hunger and passion, a fire within us in a day. We're not going to read a book and then boom, it's going to be a giant bonfire within us. Even a series for six weeks talking about prayer is not going to erupt that fire within us. It is going to be slow, at times tedious and persevering work. 
And for some of us, that's hard to imagine because that time that we had that passion was so long ago, Jesus, or maybe the, the embers are so cold that we find it hard to ever believe they would be lit. And so Jesus, maybe even believing that that kind of hunger and passion is possible is what we need you to do in us before you answer any other prayer. Jesus, I pray that you would hear our hearts today, that we want you here. We're hungry for you here. We want you to move in power and, and make your presence known in a manifest way. Well, we don't want to get to the end of our lives and just be played church. We did things on Sunday and we never saw you work in a way that was undeniable. So I pray that you would, you would rise up a hunger in our hearts that isn't of our own making, but it's from you. I'd like to ask everybody in this room if you would just extend your hands forward, palms up. I'm just imagining sitting across the table from you in a restaurant or a coffee shop and and. and and you ask me to pray for you and I just grab your hands and together we unite in prayer. Jesus, I pray for these people for whom I dearly love. Some of whom it is hard to even pray because of the hurt and the confusion and the cynicism and the baggage. Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself real, present and powerful in their lives. I pray that they would come to a place where your love for them is better than life. I pray that the fire of your spirit and their passion for you would be a burning inferno inside of them. I pray that they would be hungry for you and that you would come in their lives with power because they want you there. I pray that you would heal what has been broken. I pray that you would mend what's been torn. I pray that you bring clarity where there's been confusion and in the places where they're about ready to give up, I pray that you would sustain them for one more day. Give them their daily bread today. We thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers that you collect our prayers and our tears. I pray that you would move in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.